0: Last two weeks we've been talking about critical confidence. That's been the title of the sermons. And we've been talking about how, how necessary it is for us to have confidence in our faith. How necessary it is for us to be rooted. And I've been using this illustration of a tree that No one really admires the root system of a tree. That's not what you do. You don't walk up to a tree and think, man, I bet these roots are grand. What we admire is what we can see, what the tree produces, the leaves, the branches, how big they are, how wide they are, tall they are, and then the fruit that is on the tree. That's what we admire. And in the Christian life, that's very much how that works. We are called to bear fruit. And it is fruit that proves our discipleship and the nature of our life in Christ. Also, it's fruit that is good for other people. And that's what people admire about the Christian life, or that is what is beneficial to people about the Christian life. It's the fruit. But what produces that fruit, what enables us to be a tree that is growing and widening and is useful to people, beautiful to people, is our roots, what we are rooted in. Because what a tree produces is dependent upon that. What it is rooted in and how well it is rooted. And so the premise that I've given you the last couple of weeks is that the Christian life is to be rooted in the person and the teachings of Jesus. His word that tells us about him and what He says we should believe, and how He says we should live out our faith. There's a parable in Mark 4. It's one I've laid before you many times. Jesus said it was the most important parable, and is the one of the different types of soil that show you the different types of human hearts. I've commended to you before. It's a parable you should learn. One of the human hearts that Jesus talks about, He called rocky ground. He said there would be people who would hear the Word of God and receive it immediately with joy. They would be thankful for the Word. They would raise their hands. They would confess Christ. With joy, they would say, yes, I love this. But Jesus goes on to say they will endure for a while, but then something will happen tribulation or persecution will come because of that word, and when they do, they will fall away. He says, in other words, they will endure until the moment that that word costs them something, until the moment they have to give something up because of that word, and then they will fall away. And Jesus diagnoses the problem this way, they had no root in themselves. They weren't rooted. They were like... I remember being a kid and my dad, there was this patch of ground in our yard that he could not get grass to grow on for nothing. Nothing. I don't really know why you would want grass to grow because then you have to cut it. But it bothered my dad that there was this hole in our yard that didn't have any grass. So he, he was constantly putting grass seed out. And he had this bag of grass seed in the back of his Ford Fairmont. It's a lovely vehicle. And he had this, this grass seed back there, and some of it spilled out. And one day we went out, and I'm not lying to you, grass was growing from the floorboard, the floor mat of that Ford Fairmont, which my dad just thought was the greatest thing ever because he could not get grass to grow in the yard, but it would grow in the Ford Fairmont. Little sprigs of grass popped up on that floor mat. It didn't last because there was no root. It just popped up, just grew. And then as soon as the heat came, it withered away. Jesus said that is rocky ground. That is how some people will be. We must strive to be people who are rooted. Doctrine is not always exciting, but it is necessary for us to be rooted in the person and the teachings of Jesus, so that we can be the kind of Christians that we desire to be. And so Peter, in this second letter he's written to the church, his last letter to the church before his death, he is teaching us not only should we be confident in the Christian faith, but we can be. And he has pointed to a couple of pieces of evidence. One, one he has said we can be confident because there was this voice born from heaven as Jesus was glorified on the earth in the image the heavenly image that he would have in all of his glory, there was this voice born from heaven that said, "This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him and Peter said, "I was one of the three apostles that were an, was an eyewitness and an ear witness to this, just as the apostles were eyewitnesses to many of the miracles of the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection and jesus and Peter said, because of that, you can have confidence in your faith. He also pointed us to the prophetic word of Scripture, which we talked about last week. That that same voice from heaven that spoke over Jesus, this is my beloved son, that same voice has spoken from heaven in the written word. Men spoke from God, that's the phrase we looked at last week, and we have written down what God wanted written down in the Bible so that we might be assured of our faith as we learn about Jesus. And we talked about that last week and how we can have confidence in the Bible and how we can have confidence in it as God's Word. And so today, Peter is going to show us, again, why this rooted confidence in the person of Christ is so vital. That's why I went ahead and did another week of a sermon title of Critical confidence because this is now the application of why it is so important that we are rooted in Christ and confident in him speaking almost 80 years ago about this next section of Peter's second letter what we call chapter 2 in second peter one very respected preacher said i think all must agree that this is one of the most terrible and terrifying chapters in the entire Bible. Anyone who enjoys reading a chapter like this must surely be abnormal. Because left to one's own choices of likes and dislikes, this is the kind of chapter that one would avoid. It's one of the reasons that it's helpful to do systematic teaching of the Bible. Because it keeps you from avoiding things you would otherwise run from. And this chapter is one of them. It is a warning chapter. Deep and hard warnings about false teachers. But what we need to know is that warnings are sourced in God's love for us the same as His encouragements are, the same as His exhortations are. His warnings come to us because He loves us. Parents warn their kids. They encourage their children, they exhort their children, but they warn their children. We warn our children to prepare them for the future. We warn them about situations and places and people that they need to be aware of. And so God is going to warn us this week and the next few weeks. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know that you're going to leave here today or over the next couple of weeks and say, man, that was an uplifting message. But maybe it's like the times we hit the gym or we work in a garden or we craft a project and we get through, we get to the end, and we're sweaty and we're tired and we're ready for bed and we don't think, man, I feel good about myself. But in the days and the weeks ahead, that work bears fruit. And it is my hope that the Lord, through these warning passages will bear fruit in us that is beneficial in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. So, Father, we pray that and we ask that you will let it be for us. Let's begin with this life truth. If you grabbed one of the worship guides this morning and you're a note taker, let's start with this life truth. That which is false will come up among that which is true in order to lead people away From Jesus. We are not called to respond in fear or in constant suspicion, but with spiritual vigilance and growth. I want to call your attention to verse 1 of chapter 2. Peter says, "...but false prophets also arose among the people." What he is talking about, he's connecting it to what he just taught us. That there have been, as we have recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament, men speaking from God. Where God breathed his word out to men. So that they didn't lose their personality, but so that every word that they wrote was what God wanted them to write. Prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament. But yet, Peter says at the exact same time that God is speaking through men, there are other people who show up and they also say they're speaking for God, yet they are not. They are not from God and they carry no spiritual authority, although they claim to do both. This has always been a problem and Peter is telling us it will always be a problem until the day that Jesus returns. If you have a Bible this morning, or a copy of God's Word, would you go to Acts chapter 20 for a moment? I'll take that opportunity to say, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, even if you're watching this on replay, if you will let us know that, we would love to gift you with a Bible. But I want to point you to Acts chapter 20. This is a a time in the early church where Paul is leaving To go to Jerusalem, he knows that he is likely to be imprisoned there. Uh, Eventually, he will go to Rome, and from there, he will uh, be persecuted even to death. And he is speaking to the elders, the pastors over the church of Ephesus, where he has spent so much time. He loves this people, he loves this church, And this is what he says to them in his parting words, and I'll call your attention to verse 30. He says a lot of things, but we're going to start in, excuse me, in verse uh, 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So pause there, he is telling the pastors of the church, when I leave, I know something you're going to have to deal with is wolves are going to come in. They're going to be dressed like sheep, but they are going to be wolves, and they're going to want to devour the people of God in the church. And elders, pastors, they're even going to arise among you. There will be pastors and there will be teachers who are actually wolves. And Paul is warning them about that. He says they will speak twisted things to draw away the people of God. Twisted things will be important, and we'll elaborate on that in a moment, but I want to call your attention to draw away, which means to separate or to seduce. Here's the reality, church. There are spiritual forces right now, working to lure you away from Jesus. That is a reality. It is not one you can see. And those spiritual forces work in a variety of ways. But they they are aiming to pull you from Jesus. Those same spiritual forces, the Bible says try to blind the minds of unbelievers so they can't even see Jesus. But those who have already claimed Jesus, they are doing what they can to pull you away from Jesus and pull you away from His church. And they do that in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that they try to do this is by false teachers teaching false things, twisting God's Word. And I want you to see how the apostle says we should respond to this. He says in verse 31, Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Talking about scriptures. Here are common reactions when we either see or hear of false teachers that impact us directly or impact those we love or impact us indirectly. Common reactions are anger, fear, and even suspicion. We might, re- we might react in such a way that we're so angry that we just leave the church. We might react in such a way that we're so fearful that we don't trust anyone. We don't trust any leader. We're suspicious of everyone because we know there are people that are false. Some have separated from the church and some have wandered from the faith. But none of these things are helpful. And none of these things are actually modeled in Scripture for us for how we address the fact that there will be false prophets and false teachers. Rather we are told, be alert, remember everything that has been taught to you that is good, stay close to God by His Word. If we're not careful in responding to those who are false, we might run from that that is true. We might be... We might find ourselves throwing out what is good, trying to avoid what is bad. The Bible tells us, test everything, but hold on to what's good. Jesus warned us that false prophets would arise, and He warned us so that we wouldn't be surprised, and so that we are not shaken when it happens, and so that we don't run from Jesus or His church in response. So we must know that there will always be that which is false coming up among that which is true. The point is to pull you from Jesus, but don't respond in fear or constant suspicion, but rather be spiritually vigilant and grow. Grow in your faith. Grow in what is true. Stay close to God. Stay close to His Word. Stay close into a community that is pursuing who God really is. Embrace sound teaching. That is how you respond to falsehoods in the church. Peter goes on to describe false teachers. So we want to take a look at what he said about them in these first few verses of chapter 2. I believe we have maybe five or six items here that are characteristics of false teachers. Number one, they are subtle in their approach and their teaching. False teachers are subtle in their approach and in their teaching. Notice how Peter says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Here's what false teachers don't do. They don't greet you and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm a false teacher. They are subtle. They are secretive. You and I know that there will always be those outside the church that will tell us the gospel isn't true. We know there will always be people outside the church that will call into question the validity of the Bible. We talked about that last week. But here's what Peter is talking about. He's not talking about people outside the church. He is talking about there will be people inside the church who will claim to be from Jesus, but they will distort His message. They will twist His Scriptures. And church, to us, I think they're more dangerous than those outside. Douglas Moo, who is a Christian commentator, Bible commentator, he said this, We can argue that the danger of false teaching is greater in our day than it's ever been. Why? Because we live in an era, we live in an era that is deeply suspicious of absolute truth. It used to be that people would argue about what religion, what philosophy, or what systems of ethics was right. But today... People usually are content with just saying, it's not for everybody, but it works for me. It's my road to spiritual fulfillment. Our society has embraced pluralism and tolerance as its new gods. Shifting from a pursuit of truth to a preoccupation with whatever works for you. He goes on to talk about how in this environment, Christians will find it to be very uncomfortable to stand for absolute truth. Because to stand for absolute truth will often mean you have to tell someone else that they're wrong. And we live in a society that doesn't allow that. And in that type of environment, where Christians are becoming less willing to stand for truth and more willing to defend their faith based on how it works for them, there is an opportunity for false teachers to come in and prey on people that don't really know what they believe or why they believe it. False teachers mix their messages with truth. They take what is true of God's Word and twist it. They add to it. They take away from it. They take it out of context. They mix some error in with the truth. They use New Testament and Old Testament terms, but they interpret them in new ways. They claim to speak for God, but they're actually advancing their own ideas, their own agendas. They want to hide the degree to which their teaching is not in line with the Bible. That's how they work. They're subtle in their approach. Otherwise, you might recognize them easily and call them out. But if they can present to you a gospel that looks very similar, yet has just changed a little bit, they may can lure you away with it. Characteristic number two, they deny Christ. False teachers ultimately deny Christ This is exactly what Peter says. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. All right, so true prophets and true teachers are rooted in God's Word. They don't teach their own ideas. They teach Scripture. The only authority that a true teacher claims is that which they teach from the Bible. They don't hold any other authority over anyone. They teach the Word and they point out how the Word is authoritative and and should be obeyed. And that is the only authority they claim. Good teachers not only instruct, but they will show you where they get their instructions. How they have arrived at their thoughts from God's Word. And they do so without twisting the Scriptures. False teachers, on the other hand, promote their own ideas their own myths, their own thoughts, with a hint of the Bible in it so that it sounds right. And ultimately in doing this, they deny Jesus, who is the Word that became flesh. There's many ways to deny Jesus. You can just leave Him out altogether. There are teachers and preachers today who teach really good ethical things and never really talk about Jesus at all. You can also deny Jesus by minimizing Him, by making Him a prop in your teaching. Where He's pointed to, but He's not really the central point of it all. Many today are even denying Christ by changing His mission. I remember 10 or 15 years ago, there being a young man in this church, and he left, and he got involved with a a group that was very popular in what's called the social gospel movement. Social gospel is a word or a term, it's, it's for believers that gather together and their core principles and ideas is to bring social change, help the poor, the needy, bring about equality justice in society. And and by the way, all of those things are biblical things, very good things that we are supposed to, as a church, be fighting for. But the social gospel does not deal with people's sin. Their promotion of Jesus, the, the social gospel movement, the promotion of Jesus is not about His atoning work and sacrifice on the cross for our sins. It's about Him as a display of God's love. And I remember talking to this young man and and listening to him describe the gospel as he was beginning to see it, and he was talking about how the point of Jesus dying on the cross was to show people how much God loved them. That he was sent from God to be a display of God's love, and then we murdered him. And while, yes, we do see the absolute love of God in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross... If you stop there, you leave out the atonement. And if you leave out the atonement, you've changed the gospel. The gospel is that we needed a sacrifice for our sins. Because without a sacrifice for our sins to forgive us of our sins, we would be lost for all of eternity. And Jesus was that sacrifice. One way that people deny Jesus today is they talk about His work on the cross simply being a work of love without talking about it being an atoning sacrifice. And you can deny Jesus by your lifestyle, which leads us to the characteristic number three of false teachers. They do not address sin, but they remake God into an image that people desire. False teachers do not address sin, but they remake God into an image that people desire. Church, I get this straight from the Old Testament. One of the most common themes of the Old Testament of false prophets is they were continually telling people that they had peace with God when they really didn't. Jeremiah 14, God said, I did not send those people to you who say sword and famine will not come upon this land. The people to whom they prophesy will actually be victims of sword and famine. In Lamentations 2, God said, your prophets have sent for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity in order to restore your fortunes. Jeremiah 5, God said, the prophets you have prophesy falsely, and my people love it. They love to have it so. Here's the reality. False teaching always leads to false living, as one pastor said. Lifestyles that are not in line with God's Word. And Peter's language in verse 2 confirms this. Look at verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Talking about the sensuality, the immorality of the false teachers. What Peter is saying is that you have these false teachers and in Peter's day, they were denying the coming of Jesus. We've talked about this. They were denying that there would be a second coming of Christ and a judgment. And if there's no judgment, church, it doesn't matter how you live. If Jesus isn't coming back, to redeem His people and judge the world, then you can live however you want to live. And so when false teachers were saying there is no second coming, there is no return of Jesus, there's not going to be a judgment of the earth, it removed the moral constraint off the people and they could live in sensuality. False teachers, by and large, will not talk about your sin. They will not teach in a way that will make you hate sin. They will not teach in a way that will cause you to see your sin. Their teaching will primarily be reminding you you're a good person. You're misunderstood or you're in misunderstood situations. They will not talk to you about what is wrong before God. And the reality is, our fallen nature wants that kind of teaching. And that's what makes it so popular. Again, in your Bibles, if you can, go to 2 Timothy for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul is writing to his young protege, the man he's mentoring, Timothy He says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, verse 2, preach the word. I charge you, Timothy, to do one thing. Preach God's word. And then look at what he says in verse 3. For there is a time coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander into myths. Many false prophets will arise, Jesus said in Matthew 24, and lead many astray. Many. There will never be a lack of false teachers and there will never be a lack of people who follow them. Because there will always be crowds of people who want a religion that doesn't cost them anything. There will always be a crowd of people who want a teacher to present to them a God that doesn't offend them. There will always be false teachers who will find crowds who want them to present to them an image of God that they desire. And those false teachers will feed off those crowds, and those crowds will feed off those false teachers. And Paul tells Timothy, don't be that person, preach God's Word. False teachers, number four, seek personal gain from their message. False teachers seek personal gain from their message. Look in verse three. It's back in second Peter, second Peter chapter two, verse three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, in the Old Testament, God said in Jeremiah six of false prophets, they are greedy for unjust gain. There are false prophets and false priests who deal falsely. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Why would they do that? Why would they not give hard words to their people? Why would they not see the wounds of the people, see where they had fallen from God, and go to them and warn them and admonish them, even if it hurt? Why? Because they wanted to be well-liked. Because if they were well-liked, they would be taken care of. They would be paid. They would have notoriety. False teachers exploit people, they exploit their desires, they give them myths. And their motivation is often their own personal gain. They like the sense of power they have from being a teacher. They like people looking to them. Church, I've I've heard stories of pastors who for years continued pastoring a church even after they had discovered they didn't believe there was a God anymore. Why? Because it was their livelihood. They get personal gain from what they peddle. It costs them nothing. And I I just want to remind you of what we talked about two weeks ago. Compare the false teachers to the apostles. These false teachers tell the people what they want to hear because of what they will gain from it. The apostles were willing to tell the people God's Word no matter what it cost them. And for every one of the apostles, it cost them their freedom. For 11 11 of the 12 of them, it cost them their lives in persecution. For the 12th, it cost him being exiled alone. For all of them, it cost them torture. It cost them money. It cost them family. It cost them friends. It cost them everything to hold to God's Word. False teachers, it cost them nothing. It's all about what they gain from it. Which is why Paul told Timothy, preach the Word, endure suffering, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, people aren't always going to like you. They're going to shove you aside. They're not going to want to hear what you have to say. They are going to shame you and hate you. People are going to leave you. It's going to cost you, Timothy, so endure it when it does, but preach the Word. Because there will always be people with itching ears who will grab for them teachers who will tell them everything they want to hear. Don't be that person, Timothy. the final characteristic of false teachers is they they bring disgrace upon the gospel. They bring spiritual ruin to their followers. And they bring judgment upon themselves. Look at the second part of verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them, because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many people who have claimed the name of Christ falsely have caused people to disavow God. Many people who have claimed the name of Christ falsely have caused people to disavow God by how they live, to walk away from the faith. You remember back in the first letter Peter wrote, in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, "'Church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable.'" So that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. False teachers don't do that. False teachers live in such a way that they, people see how they live, they hear how they fall, and it brings shame upon the gospel, and many have wandered from the truth because of them. They bring disgrace upon the gospel, but they bring spiritual ruin to their followers. Their heresies are destructive. Church, if we follow those who are false, it will lead to our ruin. That is what God's warning us about. That is what God is telling us. This will happen, church, be warned. They will rise among you. It will look good and it will sound good. But if you follow after it, it will be your ruin. Because these false teachers bring judgment upon themselves. That's how Peter ends the little section we looked at today. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. What is he saying? He's saying condemnation is hanging over their head right now. And their destruction is coming swiftly. God says not many of you should be teachers because with it will come extra judgment. He also says temptation will come but woe to him through who through whom it comes. Teachers who handle God's word falsely and lead people astray and cause people to wander from Jesus, are under not only condemnation, but a special condemnation. Not only judgment, but a unique judgment. And church, we don't want anything to do with that. We want to follow Jesus and His Word. And that leads us to our gospel plea. But before I read this to us, let me say something as an aside. I think it's really important to mention That not every person who disagrees with you theologically is a heretic or a false teacher. In Christendom, there are a lot of good doctrines that people disagree with. And just because someone doesn't see some characteristic of the faith exactly like you do doesn't mean they're a false teacher. It doesn't mean they're a heretic. Not every leader who has a moral failure was a false teacher. Sometimes they were just in positions they shouldn't have been in, or they were in a position God put them in, but they failed. I think we have to be very careful with these words. We have gotten to a place in the church where we use heresy quite liberally we call out anything that is a slight change from what we believe is heresy or false teaching and we need to be very careful about that because when we do when we do that it dilutes what actual false teaching is first john 4 says john says test the spirit test the spirits that are in men and here's how you test them find out what they say about jesus find out what they say about the bible Ask them what they confess about Christ and His mission and His ministry. And ask them what they believe about the Word that is from Jesus. And that is how you test someone who is true and someone who is false. So this gospel plea that I want to give us this morning, three parts to it. False teachers will hold positions in a church. They will. False teachers will do many successful works. They will. Yet their true nature will be seen in how they influence those around them. Let me pause there. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He actually says in another part of the Gospels, that there will be false prophets who will arise and they will do signs and wonders. So just because someone can do a miracle doesn't mean they're actually from Jesus. That'll blow your mind. But I would apply it in our day this way. We tend and our culture tends to gain to gauge what is true by the results from it. If there's a crowd, it must be true. If it's a popular movement, it must be true. If that guy is well-spoken and charismatic, it must be true. If he has a really large church and a really big following on social media, it must be true. And Jesus says, don't look at those things. Look at their area of influence. Look at what they have left behind in their wake Is it fruit of the Spirit? Is it the wisdom of the Spirit? Or is it the chaos of man? That's how you'll know the false from the true. Secondly, we must be a people in a community that desires above all things to know God and worship Him as He truly is that desires to know God and worship Him as He truly is. I've shared this with you before, but I remember my very first Bible college class. The the professor was an older pastor from North Alabama, and he said, before I get started in this class, I just want to say something to all of you. Somewhere, my theology is wrong. The problem is, I don't know where. And we're all just staring at him. And he says, I know it seems odd that the professor would say that, but I want you to consider what it would sound like if I said the opposite. I know it all. It's all right. I got it all down. He said, don't be that person. The cry of Moses to God was, show me your glory. Church, we need to be aware that we will always want God to be the way we think he should be we will always want God in the image that best suits us and best suits our idea of what is good and right and fair. And church, it is upon us and it is upon our community to pursue God and learn who He is and worship Him that way, whether He offends us or not. As a matter of fact, we will do that, I believe, for all of eternity we will pursue the glories of an infinite God for all of eternity. So be a part of desiring to be on a journey to learn who God really is. We have a tendency to want to put ourselves in groups and churches and situations where everybody thinks exactly like we do, and there's no shades of doctrine when it comes to non-essential issues. I think it's good to be in a place where people have different views on shades of doctrine so that we can learn from one another, so that we can pursue that truth together, so that we can say, well, have you thought about this? Well, have you thought about this? And through those good discussions, we can arrive at the truth about God from His Word. And then finally, the third part of this gospel plea, for us to recognize what is false. We must be continually rooted and growing in what is true. I don't know if this is actually true or not. Not what I just said, but what I'm about to say. But it's an illustration that I've heard and it works, so I'm going to go with it. But I've heard that the way the United States Treasury teaches their agents to identify false counterfeit bills is by making them study the true bills. Because if they study what is true long enough then they will be able to recognize that which is false. And that works really well to describe the best way for you and I to be able to discern what is false teaching and false prophets and false teachers. We will never be able to recognize what is false unless we are constantly rooted and growing in that which we know to be true. Ephesians 4.15 says, The church of God should speak truth in love to one another so that they grow up in every way into Jesus. And it talks about how that maturity is needed so that we are not tossed to and fro by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine or every human cunning or every craftiness and deceitful scheme. We need to speak truth in love And desire to grow up in the faith so that we are not drawn away by error. I want to ask the worship team to come up. And if you are praying this morning as one of our prayer partners, I ask you to come up as well. And as they're doing that, I want to commend to you some thoughts. I recognize the heaviness of this message when i felt like we should go through first and second peter months and months and months ago and i was kind of skimming through them i realized i've never preached second peter before and when i got to this chapter i thought oh man that may be a little rough it was heavier preaching it than i thought it would be part of me this week thought okay if we're going if i'm going to preach this now i need to find a way at the end to bring in some encouraging passages but I thought better of it because sometimes we just need the warnings. God is sovereign. I've said this many times. God is sovereign. I think He puts us in the exact place He wants us to be at the time He wants us to be there. To hear what He has planned. I, I heard a testimony This week of someone who called me and said that what we talked about last week from God's Word was exactly what someone that was with them needed to hear on that day. And that individual had not been here in a while. That's not coincidence. That's the sovereignty of God in putting us where we need to be at the moment we need to be there. So, somehow we need these warnings. We need the warnings to come. I would encourage you to not leave today and think, yeah, I may skip the next few weeks. God knows what we need. I don't know what this has stirred up in you. I would not be surprised if there is a mixture of exhortation a mixture of pondering, maybe even a mixture of offense. But I want to ask you this morning to look to Jesus and ask God, why did you sovereignly have me here today to hear these warnings? I will invite you this morning to worship in response to a loving God who encourages us and exhorts us and warns us because He cares for us. This morning, would you heed the warnings, whatever it may be, and would you look to Him and worship? And this morning, if you need prayer for anything, anything at all, maybe it's not even exactly related to what we talked about today, you just need someone to pray for you about a burden that you brought in this morning, I want to encourage you to be bold, and come and be prayed for. If It's physical healing. We'll pray for that. Whatever the need may be, let us know. We want to pray for you. And as always, I want to encourage you that if God has spoken to you this morning about your walk with Him, if, if He's revealed something to your heart about your relationship with Jesus, please don't ignore that. And before you leave here today or before you walk away from this replay, reach out and contact somebody. Come and find me before the service is over. Let me know that. God is working on you, something in your relationship with Him, and we will make time to talk about it. So, Jesus, I ask you this morning that you would be gentle with us and help us. I pray that if I have said anything in error, anything in my humanity, You will cause it to fall to the ground and be blown away. But I ask that everything that has been said that is of your word and is true will remain on our hearts. And I pray that you will do the work that is needed in us and make these warnings effective for our souls and our good. Maybe we're being pulled right now. Maybe we're being lured away right now. Or maybe there's going to come a day in the future where we will be. And this word is intended for our help. God, please make us a people that understand, that are rooted deep in your truth, growing and producing fruit that is lovely, glorious, majestic in pointing people to you. Help us be a church, God, that loves your word, holds steady to it, and refuses to move from it. And God, protect us from the work of the enemy. Protect us from those forces that would pull us from Christ. Fight for us, God. We need you. Help us to worship now. Help us to pray. God, I know it's a, it's a heavy message today, but you knew that. Let us not be overcome by the burden of the message But Jesus, let us remember your words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Help us to run to you, Jesus, with the burdens and know that you will lift them because you are our God and our Savior and our sacrifice. Be with your people now. Help us to worship and be thankful. In your name, amen. Let me encourage you to assume a posture of prayer. Or one of worship. To stand and sing. To kneel and pray. To come to the front. Do what the Lord leads. To have your heart and your mind engaged by Him. Amen.